Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will continue our discussion of the history of sport and recreation as we once again highlight four specific eras in the sports and games that best represent them. So if you ever wondered how the death of a king led to the downfall of jousting, or how Martin Luther and Johannes Gutenberg changed the face of sport, this is the podcast for you. So sit back and relax as we deep dive the history of sport on the Sport Professor Podcast. Last week on the Sport Professor Podcast, we discussed sport in ancient societies, highlighting how sports in ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Greece, and ancient Rome evolved over time. We discussed the trends that we saw within those specific societies, focusing specifically on the use of sport as a way to train for war, the influence of religion on sport, the idea of sport as a means of education, the influence of social class and the government on these sporting events. This week, I want to continue our discussion of sport and recreation throughout history by focusing on four other societies in the evolution of sport that occurred during those times. To begin with, I want to continue progressing forward. And after the fall of the Roman Empire, we entered into what was known as the Dark and the Middle Ages. During this time, after the Roman Empire fell, the people in Europe faced a harsh, tumultuous situation where there were a number of political wars and religious struggles. During the early part of this era, the Europeans had a very rigid class system, which was known as feudalism, or the feudal system. Within this system, you had members of the nobility that were expected to fight and often provide security for the families and the people who were under them who were called the serfs. On the other hand, you also had the serfs. Now, the serfs were subservient to the nobility of the area. The nobility, with the lords, the knights, the barons, and the kings, would then require that the serfs pay harsh taxes and rent on their land in exchange for that protection that they were offering. The basic means of earning a living for these serfs was to either fight as a soldier under the nobility or to work as peasants. The need to train these soldiers for fighting in conflict actually led to one of the great sporting events of the era, which we'll get to here in a second. But it's also important to note that during this time where we had this feudal system in place, there were a ton of holidays that were being celebrated that allowed both the peasants and the nobility a lot of times participate in sport and recreation activities. A number of individuals have pointed out that besides just Sundays in which we would have religious ceremonies, for the church, you would also enjoy up to eight weeks of holidays throughout the year. Now, these are holidays where you were free from any type of work and could engage in a number of different games and sporting events or even spectator events where you would go to contest for pure pleasure. 
In fact, many of the special holidays had specific rites or songs or dances that were associated with them that you were supposed to participate in. Some of the festivals were very religious-based, such as Easter, while other ones were more based on the calendar, like the beginning of spring. Outside of just these holidays in which individuals participated in recreation, leisure, and sporting activities, there was also specific time that would be set aside for sport. However, almost all the sports during the Middle Ages were designed specifically to increase the fighting capabilities of their soldiers since warfare was so common. As a result, the lords of the manors or the individuals in the nobility that ran the area were expected to provide trained soldiers for the kings that could be used at any time that an invader or barbarians or other enemies might try to overtake the town or the city or the country. And thus, it became necessary for the individual soldiers to gain fighting skills and techniques of wars. As a result, the lords of the manors used to improvise and encourage such sports that were designed to offer fighting and weapon practices for the serfs who became warriors and knights. These activities used to encourage individuals like we saw in previous societies to better themselves physically so that they were constantly prepared to engage in fighting. The most popular way that individuals would train for war was through tournaments and jousting. Jousting provided hands-on preparation in a number of things that were important for combat, such as horsemanship, how to ride a horse, how to control a horse in battle, accuracy with different weapons, whether that be a bow and arrow, a sword, or a lance. And it provided them experience in combat situations that would keep them in shape to fight and would teach them different strategies for beating their opponent. However, even though these initial activities were set up and intended to help individuals become better fighters and as military training, they soon became very popular forms of entertainment for the people of the Middle Ages. So the first recorded reference to actually having a tournament set up where people come watch individuals engage in these activities takes back to around 1066. And this is coincidentally the same year of a famous battle, which was the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest of England. And within a century of this initial jousting tournament, they became so widespread that we actually had to start putting regulations on them to limit the number of jousts that could be held because they were worried that the king's armies would be so occupied with the jousting tournaments that they wouldn't be able to go and actually fight in wars or conflicts when those arose. These tournaments that were set up were great spectator events, but they actually mark another thing that's important for our conversation, which is they are, again, an example of early sport management. Because in order to have these tournaments, months before the competition took place, the nobles would have to attend necessary royal permits, they would have to issue challenges to the landowners and try to find which knights were going to participate. And to do this, they would have to put out the cry for the tournament. Now, the band's cry for the tournament consisted of an announcement that was sent via herald to notify the nobles that the medieval knights jousting tournament was going to be held at a specific time and place. Because remember, the knights that were participating in these tournaments served and represented specific nobility of the era. The nobility, those were the ones in charge, and the knights were used to help fight and defend the area. 
So you would have to send a call out for the tournament to the nobles and request that they send their knights. And there's actually even record of, in some instances, they would hire a jouster who was not committed to any other landmaster and was available to fight. They would hire them to come in and fight in their contest. And these individuals became known as freelancers because they were not tied down to anyone and they were good at lancing. So they became known as freelancers, which is the origin of that term that we still use today. So it was actually pretty common for a successful jouster to become extremely popular. Just like we saw with the Roman Colosseum and the gladiator contest or with the ancient Greek Olympics, these jousters that would compete in the tournaments became the rock stars of their era. They became a equivalent to the modern day star athletes. And as a result, just like in modern day athletics, where you have rivalries between cities, people cheering for specific athletes, in these tournaments, you saw similar fandom form. You saw rivalries between different knights as they battled each other, not only for the pride and the glory of representing their area, but also for the gifts that would come, such as the money and the land and the titles that would come with winning these contests. Now, I mentioned this in passing, but just like the ancient Greeks with the Olympics and the ancient Romans with the gladiator competitions, these jousting tournaments were massive entertainment events for the local people. These events were held on a field that was in fairly close proximity to a castle in what was called a lists. The list was one of the most important developments of this era because what the list actually was, it was the roped off enclosure that served as the boundaries for the playing field of the competition. Before the list was created, you would have these jousting competitions that would oftentimes be chaos because there was no boundaries to them. We saw early jousters who would be on their horse coming at each other with a big lance. Their horses would charge at each other and there would be no divide and so oftentimes there would be dangerous collisions where the horses might run into each other. So to try to put an end to those dangerous collisions and establish more boundaries and more rules around the contest, they placed a piece of string in between the riders that served as a center point that they were not allowed to cross. This established the boundaries and it became known as the list and eventually what happens is they start to build stages around these areas so that the commoners could come and sit on these stages and these grandstands that were built around the list so they could get better views. And sometimes these grandstands or these pavilions that were erected could be as high as a story where you could have thousands of people sitting and watching these contests. Just like in ancient Rome, where we saw everyone from the society come and watch the events from the common man to the upper class to the ruler, we also had that with these jousting tournaments. We would have the peasants and the serfs come to watch. We would have the royalty and the nobles come to watch as well. So we had these massive events with thousands of people flocking to them. So we almost created, again, just like in previous societies, a carnival-like atmosphere around the event. Let's dive into what these jousting events and tournaments looked like. 
you would normally begin with the Vespers Tourney. Now, this was a smaller medieval jousting tournament that was held on the eve of a larger event. The participants here were younger knights and squires, and the idea of these little small tournaments before the big ones was it gave these younger knights and squires an opportunity to demonstrate their own ability for an experienced knight in an assembled gallery. So it almost served as a minor leagues for the bigger tournament. The opening day of these tournaments were marked by a procession where the knights and the contestants rode in in a formal procession in front of a gallery of individuals, including the serfs and the peasants, but also the kings and the nobles and the royalty of the area. The second day of the tournament is when the knights would actually participate in the fighting. To do this, they would go up to what was called the Tree of Shields. This was a place where they had several different colored shields that hung down. And each different shield represented a different type of fighting or a different type of combat that they could choose to participate in. So whether that was the jousting or whether it was sword fighting or whether it was something else, they would go up to whatever shield represented the type of combat they wanted to participate in and hit that shield. And then they would actually go and participate in these forms of combat. One of the important things to point out is that the participation in the combat was all supposed to be chivalrous and was all supposed to be done according to the specific rules that were laid out by the umpire who was overseeing the event. And any act that went outside of those rules was deemed unchivalrous and those knights were looked down upon by the fans and the other participants. On the last day of the competition, there was a ceremony held that rewarded the tournament prize to whoever the winners were. It's also important to note, like we said, that they weren't just sporting competitions, they were events in and of themselves. Every night at the end of these competitions, there was a party-like atmosphere. There was feasting and music and dancing where everyone participated. With seeing how big these sporting events got to, the next question we need to look at is what led to the downfall of them. Well, by the 14th century, many members of the nobility started to participate. So we went from having the knights participate, those individuals who are actually going to war, to having the nobility, including the kings, participate because they wanted to showcase their own courage, their own talent and skills, and prove they were just as good as the knights. But when the kings participated, just like with everyone else, they were participating in a very violent, dangerous sport. With jousting, with two people galloping on horseback at each other, with lances and hitting each other, or with sword fighting, even though they were in armor, injuries were very common. And two specific injuries started to lead to the downfall of the sport. One of them was to King Henry VIII, who suffered a severe injury to his leg when his horse fell on top of him during a tournament. It may be even worse, though, was King Henry II of France. He participated in a jousting tournament in 1559 to celebrate the marriage of his daughter to the King of Spain. However, he received a fatal wound when a sliver of his opponent's lance broke off and pierced him directly in the eye, which eventually led to his death. As a result of nobility and kings starting to get severely injured and even die from participation, we start to see a slow decline in the tournament's popularity. Additionally, since these tournaments were first put in place to train knights 
to fight wars as we start to see weaponry in wars change from swords and lances to guns and other weapons we start to see a decrease in the need to have these types of competitions to train no longer were these competitions actually being done as a means to train individuals they were being done just for the enjoyment of the spectators which slowly starts to die off as well just like with the ancient greeks and the ancient romans though Jousting tournaments were not the only sports that were popular during the Dark and Middle Ages. We had a number of other sports that were participated in by a wider range of individuals. For example, archery was one of the most popular sports of the time. Just like with the jousting tournaments, where we were trying to train individuals for war, archery was based in a similar ideology. Archery was a lower class sport and activity that men were required to engage in by law. There was actually medieval archery laws that were passed in 1252 in England which required all Englishmen between the ages of 15 and 16 years old to equip themselves with a bow and arrow and know how to use it for war. The practicing and training within archery became so popular that they developed designated archery training grounds which they called butts. Outside of sports like archery and jousting tournaments aimed at developing the men for war, there were other activities that were popular as well during this time. There was something called golf, for example, which is seen as the ancestor to modern-day golf, which was a sport for the nobles. There was skittles, an ancestor of modern 10-pin bowling. There was horseshoes or horse pitching, which was throwing different horseshoes at a target. Hunting was very popular. Hammer throwing was popular. Finally, amongst the lower class, a number of indoor activities or indoor games became extremely popular during this era. Things like chess, backgammon, checkers, and other strategy games that individuals could play inside after long days of working. The Dark and Middle Ages start to overlap with the next era we want to discuss, which is the Renaissance. The Renaissance began approximately in 1350, but there's different starting points for the Renaissance in different areas of Europe. So the term Renaissance means rebirth, and it describes the revived interest in scholarship, philosophy, and arts from ancient Greece and Rome. If you remember back to our previous podcast, in ancient Greece, there was this idea of the well-balanced man that individuals in that society would strive to not only be philosophers and scholars and be good at the arts, but they would also strive to improve their body through sport and physical activity. Well, the Renaissance is this rebirth of this same idea. It represented a new freedom of thought and philosophy and expression and a more rational scientific view of life marked by the expansion of commerce or trade amongst European societies and European city-states and the increase increase in travel of individuals. During the Renaissance time, people spent much of their time doing a lot of physically demanding activities. Whether it was military service or farming or household chores, they were oftentimes very busy during the course of the day. However, that didn't mean that they didn't partake in other forms of recreation and games. In fact, especially amongst the upper class, there was an increased interest during this time in a number of recreation activities like painting and theater and music. The upper class saw the participation participation in these recreation activities as a part of a holistic education for their children, just like the ancient Greeks and just like we do in modern day America. 
As part of this development of a well-rounded person, individuals would also partake in a number of games and sporting activities. Card games and board games like chess were very popular during this time, as were other sports that involved a ball like football. Within this sport, you would have teams with 25 men on each side battling to bring the football to their side of the goal. So a pretty simple game, but one that was popular. They had other games like this that were games that demonstrated strength. They had a game called the Pony which was a game where players would throw a spear at an apple that was hung from a tree or a beam. They were allowed to run to get more momentum and taking an aim at their target. Another ball game that was played was Maglio, where the ball had to be knocked to a certain spot. And the player who knocked the ball to a spot nearest to the goal or the desired location was declared the winner. So during the Renaissance, we have this overlap with the Middle Ages where we have jousting tournaments that are popular, but we also see this change in view where we start to include sport specifically within the upper class as a way to develop the holistic person. And we see more and more ball games developed like football, like palmy, or like mango ball. Another part of the Renaissance in this rebirth within society was the Protestant Reformation, which began in the 1500s. However, the framework for the Reformation actually dates back to the 1440s and 1450s when Johannes Gutenberg reinvented or established the first European version of the printing press. The printing press was such an important part of this reformation because it was the first invention that allowed books to be printed in mass. And what was the book that most people wanted during this time? The Bible. So Gutenberg starts printing the Bible in large quantities, which causes more individuals, more common men to have the ability to read it. So as we start to see more and more individuals read the Bible, we start to see more ind- individuals disagreeing with some of the actions of the church. Over the centuries, the church, particularly in the office of the papacy, which is the Pope, had become deeply involved in the political life within Europe. There, there were political manipulations combined with this increase in the church's power and wealth contributed, a lot of people argue, to bankrupting the church of its spiritual ideologies. Individuals noted that there were a number of abuses that were occurring in the church at the time, marked primarily by the selling of indulgences by the clergy and other charges of corruption that undermined the spiritual authority of the church. Individuals started to protest against these actions of the church. At the forefront of this was Martin Luther. Luther was a pastor and a professor at the time, he deplored the entanglement of God's free gift of grace in a complex system of indulgences and good works. In other words, he disagreed with a number of the actions that the church was taking. In response to that, he wrote and posted his 95 theses. These theses attacked different aspects of the church. For example, they attacked the indulgences system, the idea that I could buy myself in to the good grace of God. He attacked the Pope, insisting that he had no authority over purgatory and that the doctrine of its merits of saints had no foundation in the gospel. So he attacked a number of the foundational ethical and theological principles of the church. 
as a result of him attacking the church, he was excommunicated, which means he was kicked out of the Catholic Church. Others started to follow Martin Luther and attack different aspects of the Catholic Church. And as a result, we see numerous Christian religions forming outside of Catholicism. You see the development of Lutheranism. You see the development of the Puritans. You see the development of the Anglican Church in England. You see the development of the Presbyterians. In each of these religions, were all based in the ideas of the gospel in the New Testament, but they all had different issues with what the Catholic Church was doing at the time. The question that many of you probably have is what does this have to do with sport? What does the Protestant Reformation and the rebelling against the Pope in the Catholic religion have to do with the history of sport during the 1500s and 1600s? Well, it's important to note that as we had individuals developing new religions and rebelling against the church, we still have the need for sport participation. But with the formation of new religions, we start to see the influence of religion more and more on sport of the time. For example, in England, who broke off from the Catholic Church when the Pope would not afford the king an annulment for his marriage, and as such, they formed the Anglican Church, or the Episcopal Church, with the King of England sitting at the head of the church. They actually had very specific laws that were put in place by the king to govern what sports were legal. More specifically, there was a law that was passed by King James in 1618 called the Declaration of Lawful Sport. And it was based off of the influence of religion on sport. It declared sports that were permissible on Sundays and other holy days after attending church. So they started to regulate what sports you could and could not participate in because they were worried that the participation in certain sports would actually take away from your dedication to God. So they declared what sports were okay on these holy days, which included Sundays and other religious holidays. They allowed archery, dancing, leaping, and vaulting, or quote-unquote other harmless recreational activities. Now that was only for the men. The women were only allowed to decorate the churches as a form of recreation. It also declared specific sports that were not permissible or not allowed on Sundays or other religious holidays or holy days, which were things like bear and bull fighting, bowling, which it became popular during the Middle Ages, was outlawed, interludes, which are short plays as a form of recreation, those were also outlawed. Now, this Declaration of Lawful Sports in England was thrown out in about 30 years due to an English revolution, but it's important. It's an important document because it highlights for us this influence of church and religion on sport. The other reason that these things are so important to the history of sport is the influence it eventually has on the Americas. If you remember from history class, the Protestant Reformation is one of the driving factors that leads to this massive increase in population in the Americas because we have a number of new religions forming, but we also have a number of governments which are trying to control religion like in England. And so we have this conflict between people living in the same country over the religion that they practice. The result of which was for a number of individuals who practice certain religions to to leave Europe and travel over to America where they would have freedom from religious prosecution, where they would have the ability to practice their own religions. So what happens is in America, we start to see individuals coming over and those individuals that are coming over bring with them the values of Europe. 
they bring with them this very strict view of how not only religion should work, but about how sport ties into that. That brings us to the last eras I want to talk about, which deals with the founding of America and the colonial and industrial revolution that occurred here. When we talk about sport in America during the colonial era, it's important that we differentiate the regions of the United States because we have two very different cultures that are occurring at the same time. In the New England area, in the northeastern United States, we have a culture that's built around the seaports, around fishing and whaling in the shipbuilding economy. Individuals are hardworking and they don't have much free time. The lack of free time really affects individuals' ability to participate in recreation and sport. In fact, one of the guiding principles of the time was that idleness was seen as the devil's worship. Meaning, if an individual was not working or participating in something that was constructive, then it was thought that they would get into trouble. And so, it was better to stay busy than to let individuals have free time or have that time to actually participate in recreation, sport, or leisure. Sundays, recreation in all of its forms was banned. And so, we see again this influence of of religion on recreation and sporting activities. Not only in New England were they worried about idleness because they thought that it was the devil's worship, they were worried about specific things that idleness brought. Things like drunkenness, things like gambling, things like dancing. They went so far as to have strict laws in their society that would ban these or punish individuals if they partook in them. The southern colonies were a little bit different. The culture in the south or the economic driving principles of the south was very agrarian, meaning it was farm-based. And we had really three classes of individuals. We had the upper-class whites, who were the landowners. We had the lower-class whites, and then we had the slaves. So the upper-class whites had the most free time. These were the individuals that were actually participating in recreation leisure activities, primarily because you would have the lower-class whites, or more likely, you would have slaves that would do all the hard labor for you. But the slaves, even though they were working from some up to some down, still had some time for recreation and that time that they had and the recreation that they engaged in came a big influence on culture over the years. So the slaves would engage in things like singing and dancing and storytelling. The other form of sport that they would engage in was actually for the pleasure of the white upper class individuals. They would have a form of boxing which they called Mendingo boxing in which slave owners would get their biggest strongest slaves and put them in hand-to-hand combat to fight each other for the pleasure and amusement of their friends. Now this sounds barbaric, but it's not too far from what we used to do with the gladiators, where we also would have slaves, captives, prisoners, go and fight in front of thousands and thousands of individuals to the death for the amusement of the people in the stands. With this Mendingo boxing matches, there weren't as many people watching, but we were still operating under the same notion that we can force individuals to engage in brutal combat for the entertainment of a different class of people. Slaves were also big in horse racing, where they served as jockeys and trainers. So essentially, slaves participated in sport almost purely for the entertainment of the slave owners. In the little bit of time that they had to themselves, at the end of a day, they would engage in forms of recreation like dancing, singing, storytelling, to try to restore themselves at least a little bit before they had to go back and work, oftentimes doing hard labor. 
just like in the northern colonies, the southern colonies similarly had a band on recreation and sport on Sundays. As the years passed, though, we started to see a little bit of a decline in these religious controls that were placed in the South, and we started seeing increase really countrywide on activities and recreation being partaken in on Sundays. The colonial era in the North and the South didn't last forever, though, as we started to see a change in the forms of industry that were occurring in those regions. And this starts right around the 1790s, when we see the beginning of the Industrial Revolution start in the North with the creation of the Industrial Mill. And what this does, it starts to take jobs in the North that were based around the harbors and the seaports, and it starts to move them into factories. And we start to provide individuals more job security. We start to provide them with better working conditions. And around these factories, we start to see cities pop up. And so we see a movement of people into these cities so that they can work in these factories, which have decreased number of hours that individuals have to work. It increases the amount of money that they make, and it results in a complete change in their lifestyle. As they're having to work less and less hours, that means they have more free time available to participate in recreation and sporting activities. As they start to make more money, they start to have more discretionary money, more money that they don't need to spend on living expenses, but they can actually spend on things that they want or desire. Things like recreation and sports. And we also start to see a need to get these products that are made within the factories out across the country. So we see a growth in a change in transportation. We see this increase in railroads across the country. And what happens is the railroads not only are moving the goods that are being produced within these factories, but they're also moving people. So it's allowing people to travel a lot more. And as we start to see there be an increase in the amount of recreation and free time people have, as we start to see there be an increase in discretionary money and an increase in the ease of transportation, we see people having so much more time to spend doing things that they want. And the church saw this as well. And so the church goes from this idea of let's band leisure time and recreational time to let's actually start to allow what they called sanction play where they said there is certain forms of recreation and sport that you can do that can be very helpful to you and this is marked maybe most notably in the 1850s by the growth of the muscular Christianity movement. This idea that in order to be a good Christian, we not only have to develop our mind and our knowledge of the Bible, but we also need to develop our bodies. And as a result, we see organizations that are formed to bring all of those aspects together. And in fact, an organization that is still around today, the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association forms in the 1850s to try to create this balanced person. This might sound fairly familiar to you because this idea of the balanced individual is not a new one in the 1850s or it's not a new one that these churches, that these churches developed. It's one that dates back to the ancient Greeks who believed in a well-rounded individual, who believed that a person needed to be a philosopher, a statesman, and be well-educated and physically fit. So the Industrial Revolution leads to churches reducing 
some of their bans that they have on sports. It leads also to an increase in the modernization of sports. We start to develop specialized athletic skills. We start to develop standardized sport products. We start to educate individuals about sport and participation. And we develop effective organizational structures of companies that can supply these sporting opportunities to the public at large, like the YMCA. From a sporting goods standpoint, we see companies start to develop to sell goods to the consumer base that has more money to spend now and has more free time to participate in these activities. One of the more famous companies that is developed was founded in 1876 was Spalding and Brothers. Spalding, which is still in place today, was a sport manufacturer who developed different sporting products for sporting events that were common at the time. Sports like basketball, sports like baseball, sports like boxing. So we see this modernization of sport, which leads to a mass growth in popularity of certain sports and leads to an increase in participation and a change in the mindset of individuals. This increase in free time, increase in discretionary money, better forms of transportation not only led to the modernization of sport, which caused companies to be developed to provide sporting goods and products to individuals, it also led to an increase in recreation time, which was marked by the creation of more theaters and dance halls, shooting galleries became popular, billiard parlors and beer gardens and saloons all became popular during this industrial revolution. However, unlike the the church sanctioning this movement in muscular Christianity, they did not sanction a lot of these activities. And in fact, they started to become very worried in the mid-1850s about different forms of public recreation. They saw a number of these forms of recreation to actually be going against what religious practices were. So they became worried that these dance halls and that these billiard parlors were encouraging individuals to partake in different forms of devilish behavior that could have a negative impact on the individuals. And so while we see the industrial revolution bringing about more sport and about more recreation, not all the recreation that was being done was being viewed in a positive light. And there were people that would still fight against those forms of recreation. This battle between the good forms of recreation and bad forms of recreation would continue over history and into the modern age. But that's where our story stops for today. Hopefully, you've been able to see some of the themes that we tracked from our previous podcast on the history of sport in ancient societies into the modern day. We saw today how sport was used as a way to train individuals for warfare. We noted that the jousting tournaments of the medieval and renaissance eras were done as a means to train knights to do battle. We also today talked about the tie of religion into sport, where previous societies used sport as a way to celebrate religion. As time progressed, individuals and leaders thought that sport actually took away from religious ceremonies. So unlike previous eras, during the Protestant Reformation and the beginning of the United States in the colonial era, we saw the religious leaders declare that sport should not be done at all 
all on Sundays. We saw that they banned recreation and leisure time because they were worried about people using that time to worship the devil. So we've seen an evolution of the tie-in between religion and sport, but religion is still influencing very much how sport is done. We also continued to discuss the differentiation of sport participation based on social class, noting that different social classes of individuals will participate in different sports. We talked about that in depth in the colonial era in the southern United States. We also talked about it during the Renaissance and the Middle Ages about who would participate in what kind of sports. And finally, we've discussed the use of sport as education. Just like in ancient societies where they believed in the development of the well-rounded person, we talked about the Renaissance era, which believed that sport was a part of the well-rounded education of individuals. We continued that into the Industrial Revolution in the United States, which had a similar idea that sport was a part of developing the well-rounded human being. If you have any questions about any of these eras and the types of sports that took place during them, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Sport Professor or on our website, thesportprofessor.com.